me let's let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll uh, we'll we'll jump into the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Lord, we give you great thanks for the day. Give you thanks for uh, Christ and uh, rescuing us. <clears throat> Lord, we do pray and ask that you be with us even this night. Guide us and direct us. Give us hope. Uh, give us hope in Christ. Um, help us to know more of the Gospel of Matthew. Help us to know more of uh, how to understand the, the scriptures here, even this night. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right. So tonight we're going to be in the, the Gospel of Matthew. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have my notes up every moment. Um, I, want, I, I essentially want to be able to walk through and um, have a little bit more discussion. This was a really hard class especially today, uh, to move online. This, is, this, this one and the next one will be by far my favorite all year. Uh, Gospel of Matthew is just a real special place in my own spiritual formation, my own life, uh, my own scholarship, uh, the work that I did on the Didache. Uh, the only gospel that the Didache engages is the Gospel of Matthew. So I've, I've done uh, an enormous amount of work on uh, gospel studies in general, but Didache in particular. And so this one, this is going to be a really more difficult one to be able to do in person uh, over the screen like this and not in, <clears throat> not, in, uh, not in person. But nonetheless, really delightful for us to be able to do this. What I won't do, uh, just because I want to be able to see more faces, um, every now and again, I will throw up my notes like this, only to highlight a couple of items that I, I want to ensure that you write down. Because uh, there's going to be a number of things uh, on today's uh, talk or in today's talk that will uh, find its way into your exam for sure. Uh, there's a number of items that I, that I that I want to, to get you there. Okay, so let's let's let me give kind of a general overview of what we'll do here in this kind of first lecture, first discussion. Uh, we're going to talk about a literary reading of Matthew, <clears throat> a literary reading of Matthew. Uh, if you remember to last week, we did more of a historical study of Matthew. And by history, uh, I mean more behind the text items. I mean setting up what was the original setting like. We're looking at external evidence. We're looking at manuscript data. We're considering the date of Matthew. Um, if, if you can remember the date that we generally offered the book of Matthew, there was a tradition in the second century that talked about how the book of Matthew was written while Paul and Peter are still preaching in Rome. That would be near the end of, um, near the end of both their lives. We are roughly in the general area of, um, 64 to 66 AD. Um, and so the, it will be, it'll have a general kind of dating around that, that item. And so what, what, what today will feel like will be less history and far more, far more, um, literary and theological readings of the, the, the book of Matthew. So as we dive into literary readings, there's going to be three items that we do in this first hour. I want to give us the purpose I want us to think through the purpose of Matthew. <clears throat> I want us to think through the structure of Matthew. And then we're going to read particular portions of, uh, of Matthew. Uh, the purpose of Matthew 
I want us to begin thinking about how does the message of Matthew unfold itself? What is the whole purpose? What is the focus, if you will, of the gospel at large? What does it aim to communicate? How is its structure? What does its structure aim to communicate? So if you have uh, your scriptures, make sure you have those open next to you as uh, hopefully you're taking notes as well. Uh, just to kind of reiterate once more, a lot of information in this lecture is going to find its way in the, uh, on, the, on the exam. Um, uh, so make sure you have your scriptures open as we navigate. The purpose, <clears throat> the purpose. Let's go ahead and start off with Genesis 1-1. Can someone open up and read for us Genesis 1-1? Someone read for us one one. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm looking at my notes and I'm about to mention Genesis. I'm so sorry. Matthew one one. That was totally my fault. Totally my fault. Matthew one one. Someone read that for us. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Excellent. Thank you. Um, yeah, thanks for that, DeAndre. Okay, so Matthew 1.1 is really going to be pivotal, pivotal for the, the themes that are going to unfold all the way through the full gospel. Uh, this, uh, when we look at the Greek text of Matthew 1.1, Matthew it's the Biblos Genesios. I think we already talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the Biblos Genesios. It's the book of beginnings, the book of beginnings. That that key phrase right there is meant to echo back for us the, the, the beginning works of Genesis. There's, there's a kind of recreation then that the book wants to kind of get out of the gate for us to be thinking about this concept of recreation, this concept of bringing us back to the beginnings. So it is going to be a book of beginnings. And then what is very fascinating is the three figures that it immediately mentions. What are the three persons? Who are the three persons there in verse one? Who are the three persons there in verse one? Jesus, David, Abraham. Bingo. So somehow, somehow the full book of Matthew is going to crash together those three figures. That right there is going to be pivotal, pivotal for the entirety of, of the book. You have the person of Jesus. You have the memory and themes related to Abraham. You then have the person and themes related to David. So before we even start unfolding what this looks like, let's think about why is Abraham an important figure and why is David an important figure? Abraham. Why Abraham? It is, he is the father of all nations. He's given the covenant or the promise of the covenant in Genesis 12. And just a quick summary of what the uh, uh, Abrahamic covenant would uh, entail. You have the promise of land. The promise of a people group. 
promise of land, promise of a people group, and a promise of blessing, a promise of blessing. So with Abraham, you have three items, land, people, and blessings. And then the author, uh, 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 the gospel writer here, fast forwards through a ton of history to then get to the person of David. Why David? Why David? David is the pinnacle figure of Israel's monarchy. Abraham is the start of Israel creation. David is the pinnacle of the kingly rule for Israel. Where is his covenant given? David receives a covenant. Where is it? Where in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Bingo. 2 Samuel chapter 7. So already out of the gate, the gospel writer is assuming you know your Old Testament. Already out of the gate, the gospel writer is assuming you know uh, uh, Israel's history. So the first few words picking up Genesios, which is the idea of the Genesis, your mind should go back to creation. But what's interesting is that Matthew's not really focused on the creative order. John is going to be focused on the creative order. Matthew isn't. But for some reason, he's echoing back this creation. And then he highlights two people. Creation of a people group and the pinnacle of the monarchy. The creation of a, of a people group, the pinnacle if you will, of the monarchy. Let me add another twist to this. Matthew 1.1, after Jesus, who's the first name? Son of David. David's mentioned. Why is David mentioned first? It breaks the historical order. If we're going to talk about creation, well, then that means we talk about Adam and Eve, then we talk about Noah, then we talk about Abraham, then we talk about Moses, then we talk about the priestly order, then we talk about David, then we talk about the new covenant, then we talk about Jesus. Like if we're going to follow the create, if we're going to follow the pattern of Israel's history, that's what we should follow. Matthew doesn't. Matthew doesn't. And the big question is why? The big question is why? Why out of the gate does he say, let's think about creation, and then he runs straight to David and then reverts his history and goes back to Abraham? I think there are two reasons. There are two reasons. One of the prominent themes, if not the main theme of Matthew, is the topic of kingdom. Is the topic of kingdom. The second theme, and I do want to say that it's subordinated to the concept of kingdom, but it is a second theme, and it's the recreation of people for land. Those two themes crash together over and over and over and over again in the Gospel of Matthew. So, so I actually think it's going to make sense that David is mentioned first, then Abraham. David's mentioned first because the prominent theme 
of the gospel of Matthew is kingdom. Jesus as king and the message of the kingdom. An auxiliary kind of helping theme, and it's going to be subordinated, if you will, to this primary movement of kingdom is this notion of recreating people for land. Recreating people for land. Let's sort of unfold this, right? So let's sort of unfold this. Matthew 1.1. Matthew 1.1 begins with this uh, kind of detailing of the history that Jesus is somehow going to be connected to these two prominent figures. And then right out of the gate, <clears throat> we have this boring genealogy, right? How many of you actually read the genealogy? I actually want you to, and I want to encourage you to read it. Yeah, it's really good that you read it. Verse two begins with what person? Verse two begins with what person? Abraham. 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 Uh, verse six ends with what person? David. David. And then we have like in the middle of, uh, uh, sorry, uh, verse six begins with Jesse into David. The middle of verse six then starts with David and then goes where? David goes where? Solomon. Uh, in, uh, let me ask it more sharply. If verse 2 to verse 6 goes from Abraham to David, verse 6 to verse 11 goes from what to what? David to what? Babylon. 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 That is an interesting tidbit. Why Babylon? We talked a little bit about this last week when we were looking at the history of ancient Judaism. What? Was it the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom that goes to Babylon? Southern kingdom. Yep. The return. The return of the king. The fall of Jerusalem. Say, say that one more time. The fall of Jerusalem. Yeah, that's right. Yep, that is exactly right. So then in verse 12, we have Babylon... Then to what figure in verse 16? Verse 12 into verse 16. Starts with Babylon, ends with whom in verse 16? What figure? Joseph, Jesus' stepfather. That's right. Jesus, or Joseph, which then leads right into Jesus. So here, right out of the gate, the author of Matthew is trying to recreate and rewrite history for you, the reader. This is the book of beginnings. This is the book of new creation. This is the book of the Genesis, but it's going to be about people. It's not going to be about land. It's not going to be about creation. It's going to be about people. But as we talk about people, it's going to be David the king, Abraham, the creator or the, the, the start of a nation that needs land. And then how do we retell this story? We go Abraham to David. We go David to exile. And then we do exile to Jesus. 
the story of the recreation is the recreation of people group. It's the inauguration of the king. It's bringing people out of the kingdom to what main person? Jesus. The gospel writer of Matthew is trying to reshape how we think of our story as readers as it, partic as it participates in this king. Kings do this. This is not abnormal in ancient Near Eastern literature. Kings rewrite the history of other nations. Let's say Lauren is the queen of a nation. Let's say I'm the king of a nation. Lauren's nation destroys my nation. She would have scribes rewrite my nation's history. That, that's normal. So this notion of a king coming in and sort of rewriting history, it's nothing abnormal to that. But now you, the reader, are invited into that. Flip over to, because I'm going to skip a couple of items in chapter two, chapter three. Keep in mind, we're talking about the purpose. Flip over to chapter four. I know it's going to be sort of difficult to, to realize where we're at in, in Matthew, but you've read through the gospel of Matthew either one or two times at this point for homework. So you should have a general sense of where we're at. <clears throat> chapter four is the temptation, it's the temptation. And then we have in verse 17, it's really part of the start of Jesus's ministry, the start of Jesus's ministry. And what's the message? What is the first kind of initial sermon call to repentance from Jesus? What repent is for, the, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Bingo. A call for repentance and a declaration of the arrival of the kingdom. A call for repentance and then a declaration that the kingdom is near. So <clears throat> Genesis 1.1 preps us for us. Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 1, 1 preps us for 417. Not only is Jesus going to be the fulfiller of Abraham and the fulfiller of David, Jesus is now the proclaimer of the king. He himself is the king, giving the message of the kingdom. I'm going to skip over a number of items because we're going to see this theme continually unfold itself. It's going to reshape how we look at the Sermon on the Mount, verse, chapters 5 and 6. But I actually want us to make a beeline straight back to uh, Matthew 28. <laughs> straight back to Matthew 28. We are very familiar with Matthew 28 especially verses 16 through 20. Known as the Great Commission. Known as the Great Commission. <clears throat> Someone read for us verses 16 and 17, and then we're going to stop right after that. <clears throat> and the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Okay, so I'm, we're going to stop right there. There's a purpose why I'm stopping right there. It's setting up the final sort of declaration, the final mission of the king. What's the final mission of the king? So when we think about kingdom, 
when we think about kingdom, I want some rate, uh, some blinking red lights to just be going off in your mind. So for example, in Matthew 1, 1, when we heard Abraham's name, you should be having some bells go off in your mind. Oh, got it. Genesis 12. Oh, got it. That's a promise. That's a land. Uh, there's circumcision involved. There's, there's blessing involved. Oh, David is mentioned. And so it should start putting off bells in your ears. Notice how Matthew ends. Jesus now comes to them, and he's now going to speak to those who doubt. Some believe in him, some doubt. Jesus now approaches them, verse 18. His first phrase, all authority. Ding, 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 ding. A theme should be going off in your mind. The concept of kingdom. All authority, where? In heaven and on earth. That's land. So when we think about kingdom, you have to have a ruler. You have to have constituents. And you have to have a kingdom. King, constituents, kingdom. In other words, a ruler people to rule, and the sphere of said ruler. All authority, kingdom, where? In heaven, uh, uh, in heaven and on earth. Okay, wait, 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 wait. I thought Abraham's covenant promised a spot of land in Palestine, Israel. Yep, it did. Did the gospel of writer, uh, the gospel writer here of Matthew now blows wide open that promise? It's not just a spot of land where God's rule and reign would be extended, it's now, it's now the full cosmos, it's the full cosmos, both in heaven and on earth. And what his mission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. What does he tell his people to do? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Bingo. And teaching them. Yep. Baptizing them, teaching them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded. The King beckons his constituents to obedience. The king beckons his constituents to do his bidding. And what's very interesting, verse 20, a broken ruler, a sinful ruler abandons his people. What does this king do? Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He doesn't abandon. This king stays. This king stays. So we're about to get into the literary structure, but I want to talk about the purpose of the book up front so we can start seeing it unfold itself. 
let, let me give you kind of a guiding statement. So we looked at Matthew 1, we looked at Matthew 4, and we bypassed a ton of material in the middle. And then we looked at Matthew 28. And I want to kind of give us a summary statement. What is the purpose of Matthew? The gospel of Matthew demonstrates, the gospel of Matthew demonstrates that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story. Say this all again. The gospel of Matthew demonstrates that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story, including, including the Davidic and Abrahamic covenant. Help everybody out. Reading this right here. By bringing his kingdom, by bringing his kingdom, and then reshaping the people of God anew. This is why we see the recasting. This is why we see the reshaping. This is why we see themes of land. This is why we see themes of people. This is why we see themes of kingdom and king and rulership. Okay, questions so far? We doing all right? Okay, questions so far? All right. Okay, let's talk about the literary structure. Let's talk about the literary <clears throat> structure. I will probably go on and off with my notes like that again. I'll probably go on and off with my notes here and there. Um, I see since then others have joined us. Yeah, great. Glad you're, glad you're here. If you can have your video on, that'd be preferable, but I understand if not. Um, really glad that you're in here. Um, and I want to have a little bit of a discussion real quick. Why is literary structure valuable? Why is literary structure needed? Why do we need to give attention to a literary structure? What's the point of, of looking at that? Um, maybe the structure could allude to something uh, said in the Old Testament, like the same form or lyricism. Yeah. Yeah, very fair. Very fair. Think of a movie. Think of movies that we enjoy. I, I, I know that this is kind of a, a really easy one to get at, but think of like a romantic comedy. Uh, comedy. How do typical romantic comedies begin? Uh, just, yeah, it's like this, what, it's, like a, it's like a phrase. They have like this meet-cute opportunity. Everyone almost begins that way. Then there's this separation. And when they separate, a, per, a part of the other person is left with the other, and there's this great mystery. How do I find this person? Then there's like these existential crisis in one mm -hmm. of them. <laughs> and then somehow they come in contact again. Their dating life is perfect. Their dating life mm -hmm. is sweet. They're, there's nothing wrong. And then all of a sudden, there's like a bad memory in one of them of, of uh, an old boyfriend comes back, a new girlfriend, like something happens and they break up. 
only to realize that they were supposed to be together the entire time anyway. So they come back together. Every romantic comedy is like, it has that predictable movements. That's a movie structure, cinema, uh, uh, cinema, uh, cinematography in that sense. So if we're thinking like a story, you have progressive markers that mark out transitions. The same happens with books. The same happens with books. A literary structure is the big 50,000 foot flyover of how the book is structured. And I wanna give us a quick method. I wanna give us a quick method for things to think about as we consider how to do a literary structure. I'm gonna give you two, uh, two uh, general terms. This is very similar to external evidence and internal evidence, if you notice. Outside of the text, do we structure the Gospel of Matthew according to the chronological timeline of Jesus? Do we structure it according to the geographical travels of Jesus? Do we structure it according to the storyline of Mark or of Luke? Right? Those are items that are found all outside of the Gospel of Matthew itself. Or you can probably see where I'm, where I'm going to land. Do we look at the literary conventions of Matthew? Do we look at Matthew as a storyteller and attempt to discern what's the story being told? So when we come to structures of the book, do we consider outside of the text questions where we're asking history questions? Do we look inside of the text where we're looking at literary conventions? Let me show you what this could look like. Option one, a historical chronological outline. This is option one. Matthew chapters one through two detail the birth and infancy of, of, of Jesus. Matthew three through four designate the preparation for ministry. Matthew 4, middle of 4, on to the middle of 15. It's the work of Jesus and his teaching in Galilee. Chapters middle of 15 to the end of 18, it's Jesus' work outside of Galilee. 19 to 20, it's, his, it's Jesus' journey towards Jerusalem. Chapters 21 to 28 to the last days of Jesus' life. So I wonder, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna ask for a raise of hand, but I wonder how many of us would want to structure Matthew this way. I'm sure you've seen it structured this way. I'm sure you're tempted to structure it this way. There are advantages to structuring it this way. There are. First one. What's the, what is the value to structuring it according to the chronological order? Well, it follows the, the trajectory of the life of Christ. 
That's a good thing, right? That's a good thing. The second one, the second aspect of why it's valuable is that it offers a chronological life of Jesus from the vantage point of Matthew. But I do think that there are some cons. There's some cons to structuring it this way. Let me raise this before I give a few. Can someone think of a couple of uh, disadvantages to structuring it in this fashion? What would, what would one disadvantage be? Perhaps this is like a linear way of thinking about it, like a more Western way of thinking about the story in chronological format. Bingo. I think you're hitting on something. It, we're assuming historical narrative governs the order of a book, right? What if I told you, what if I said that the events of Matthew 8 happened in the final week of Jesus, Jesus' life? Like historically, right? Matthew doesn't present it that way though. So, Christine, you're, you're, you're getting ready to hit sort of the main thrust of why I, I consider this a, a, a disadvantage is that it does not consider Matthew as a storyteller. We then impose the chronology of Jesus' life, and then we foist it upon Matthew. Rather than we read Matthew and let his order pop up. And it's very difficult to do, very difficult to do. It takes a number of times of reading a book to get comfortable with the movements of the book to then see how it's unfolded. I'm gonna skip over this tripartite plot, not a problem. Option three. For you, it's gonna be option two. Option two, we're gonna call this the narrative discourse structure. The narrative discourse structure. This right here is going to be my preferred structure. This right here is going to be my preferred structure. The narrative discourse structure. And I'll explain what I mean by those two terms, especially if, if you're unfamiliar with the, what those two terms mean. Narrative is essentially storytelling. Narrative is the storytelling item or the storytelling feature, if you will. Discourse, what's a discourse? It's a lengthy speaking. I'm giving a discourse. So it's a lengthy exposition. Matthew, Matthew is composed of five narrative discourse structures. We can call them narrative discourse cycle, maybe. That might be a better term. Narrative discourse cycles. Make sure this right here is written down. 
No, no need to worry about the Greek right there. Just want to show you the naysayos. Make sure that item is written down because I'm going to move down to the next page. Okay, so here's then what the structure could look like. Let's walk through this. So make sure you have your make sure you have your scriptures open. And we're going to navigate the whole structure. I want to try to walk through it and, and display how the structure is unfolding, as well as as well as how the structure actually serves the purpose. The literary structure of a book is a device for communication, hoping then to communicate to the greater end, what is the purpose of the book? So as you can tell, we are doing the big 50,000 foot flyovers of this book today. We'll, we'll keep doing it all this day. Next week, we're going to hone in on, on some various themes. Chapter one. So chapter one is the genealogy and it's the birth. So if this is the book of the beginnings, it makes sense that the birth of Jesus is mentioned here uh, in Matthew one. You have the genealogy, which shows that Jesus fits in this human lineage. That he's born into the human race. And then he's given a name. He's given a name. Flip over to verse 18. So you can see the, we're in chapter one. Flip over to verse 18. So you can see we're on the, uh, the, the birth of Jesus. And the angels come down and they want to uh, 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 provide the name to Joseph and Mary. Verse 23. His name shall be called Emmanuel. His name shall be called Emmanuel. The Hebrew term. Im is a preposition with El, the E-L ending is God. Emmanuel. God with us. Then we pop right down into the start of the first narrative. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to kind of thumb through and I want you to uh, just so just so we can uh, have engagement. I'm just going to turn this off just for a moment. I will turn this back on. I promise. We'll keep, we'll keep going back and forth through that. So chapter two, I want you to track with me with chapter two. Uh, oh my word! Not to point it out, Olivia and Jess, are you eating pop? You guys are watching a movie. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay, chapter two. Uh, we're in chapter two. Jesus is already born at this point, uh, and so look at chapter two. We have a couple of stories, right? There's a couple of stories there in chapter two. Lyndall, did I misspeak there? Chime on in real quick. What's that, Sean? Two did stories, chapter two? No, you said captures the human nature of Christ but not the divine nature. Did I, did I misspeak? Oh, no, no. That was before in regards to the historical outline. I just thought it might 
focus less on the divine, but. That's actually a really good observation, especially in our previous conversation of Christology from below, Christology from above. Yeah, I, I think you're, I think you're very right. So chapter two, you have a number of stories. Flip over to chapter three. You have a number of stories. And then what do you have in chapter four? Do we have speeches yet or is it still another story? Speeches or stories of chapter four? What would we say? Stories. Stories. It's stories. Then we get to chapter five. What do we have? It's the first big speech, and it is a big speech. Chapter five, six, and seven is this big speech of Jesus. Okay. These type of cycles, we're going to see all the way through Matthew. So if we can, chapter 2 to chapter 7 serves as a unit. Read those as a unit. Every time, narrative precedes discourse. Every time. Stories will precede speech. What's fascinating is that items in the narrative help undergird and explain what's happening in the speech every time. So let's walk through this. Chapter two, what's the first story? What's the first story there of chapter two? What's the first story of chapter two? I mean, want to see the king here? want to see the king here? Yeah, that's right. So we have Herod, we have the kings, uh, the, the king, he's threatened by Jesus. The king is a child, so he starts killing babies. Mary and Joseph catch wind of this. So what do they do there in verse 13? What happens in verse 13? Uh, feel free, everyone go ahead and turn on their mic. Feel free to chime in. Oh, they escaped to Egypt. Yeah, they escaped to Egypt. Down in verse 16, what happens? <clears throat> What's happening? King Herod killed the babies. Yeah, so Herod is killing the babies. Verse 19, what happens there? Herod dies. Yeah, Herod dies. Then we come over to chapter 3. Then we come over to chapter 3. Kind of a one like long scene. What's the one long scene? What's about? What is it about? John the Baptist. Yeah. We have John the Baptist. We have Jesus getting baptized. Then in chapter four, what happens? Temptations. Jesus is tempted a couple times in the wilderness. Okay. Here's what I want to do. I just want to retell that story. You have kings. You have an abusive king. So we flee to Egypt. We then leave Egypt. We walk through water. And we head into the wilderness. What story did I just describe? Moses. Egypt to be protected by the king. 
We head to Egypt because there's an evil king in the land. So we go to Egypt. We realize that the king in the land dies. Therefore, we can leave Egypt. And in leaving Egypt, we pass through the waters of baptism. And then we head into the wilderness. What story did I just describe? The book of Exodus. Someone said that. Can I tell you? I didn't. I described Matthew 2 through 4. But what is interesting is that the gospel writer here is taking the Exodus story and then reframing it with the life of Jesus. This is, this is a brilliant storytelling. This is brilliant storytelling. So we can then say that Matthew verses or chapters two through four is the preparation of Jesus as the new Moses. It's the preparation of Jesus as the new Moses. This is how this gets completely unreal. It now hopefully reframes the question, why in the world does Jesus need to be baptized in chapter three? I don't know if any of you have ever asked that question. Baptism is sort of like, we do this after we have sin and repentance and we believe, therefore we should be baptized. Why in the world is Jesus being baptized? It's identification. Moses walked through water, and in order to show that Jesus is the new and better Moses, he walks through water. It's repairing us as readers. Out of Egypt, Jesus comes just like Israel and Moses did. Jesus walks through the water of, uh, uh, of baptism, very similar to Moses and Israel, only then to look in chapter four. What happens in chapter four? Jesus was led by the spirit to what? He was led in the wilderness for how long? 40 days. 40 days. Does that not sound familiar? Does that 40 not years? sound familiar? Sounds like 40 years, does it not? Mm-hmm. 40 days. Do you not hear all of these reverberating echoes of past stories that you already know? So the gospel writer is retelling the story to try to recraft how we view Jesus in light of Israel's story. Okay, I want to do one more thing, and then I want to open it up for questions. Because I know I'm sure right now there are a thousand questions going on. If chapters two through four is the story of preparing Jesus as the new Moses... What do we then do with chapters five through seven? Okay, here we go. Look at the end of chapter four. Look at the end of chapter four. Verse 23, he goes uh, uh, throughout all Galilee, he's teaching. What does he proclaim? He's proclaiming the message of the kingdom. This is where we get David again, the message of the kingdom. But remember, for some reason, the gospel writer never introduced to us Moses, but somehow he's he's telling us 
Jesus' story through the narrative of Moses. Chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. Moses left the crowd at the base of the hill to go up the mountain. Look at verse 1 again. And when he did what? He sat down. Moses was was hid in a cloud. We now come to a major disagreement in the story. Here's the massive, here's the massive disparity. Moses goes up the mountain, is pushed into a rock, concealed, and is given the law by God. What does Jesus do? Jesus goes up onto the mountain. He sits down. Verse 2. Look at verse 2. He opens his mouth. This is painting Jesus as the new covenant law giver. It's no longer Mosaic law. The new covenant is the message of the kingdom. So hopefully what this now does is is it reframes the whole story. It reframes the whole story. Don't, Don't go start writing down all these notes, but I want you to see something real quick. Cycle one. It's the return from exile to deliver the new law. That's the big chapters two, three, seven, but that narrative, it's preparing us to view Jesus as the new Moses so that we now have a new frame of reference for the Sermon on the Mount. It's the new law from the new Moses. Let's just push pause and say, are there questions, comments? How in the world did you see that and I didn't type of stuff? I like it. I'll be honest. So it's like, man, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> hey, Sean. Um, what? Oh, yeah. Sorry, Doctor Wilhite. Yeah, Doctor Wilhite. I was now me take my classes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Amber just whispered in my ear. I'm like, oh yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. I was wondering about this. I kind of answered this. I was going to ask because it doesn't say uh, in Matthew one one. It does connect to the old covenants. It connects to the Abrahamic covenant. It connects to the Davidic covenant. But it he does not say the Mosaic covenant. But then we see him write in a way to where it brings forth. Is it because the Old Testament never said he would come in the line of like he is going to be a seed of Abraham and in the line of David? But he's and he just comes in a form of the mosaic or in the form of Moses. One like me will come. Yeah. Um, but just, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because that is really helpful. And I do think, I think you're, I think you're, you're hitting something. And I'm, I'm glad you, you raised it. I alluded to it. And I wanted to know if someone picked up Matthew 1 1, David and Abraham are the exclusive covenant receivers. Noah's not mentioned and, and Adam's not. But 
the story sounds like Moses. So, so here's what I think is happening. Abraham, David are more valuable, more life-giving covenant than Moses. But Deuteronomy 18, oh, don't quote me. Don't, you got to tell me where it is. I have it written down. Deuteronomy something. One like me will then come after me. So we're always looking for this next Moses. But the gospel writer never gives place of privilege to Moses. We're actually going to see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus fulfills the law, does away with it. It's not abrogated. It's fully fulfilled in himself. So so then after Matthew 5, the law really isn't that important. So Moses is done away with. Davidic, Abrahamic, new is brought to the fore. Is that all right, Jake? Does that help? Okay, good. Any other questions here? We good? I have a question. Oh, yeah. It's okay. Um, I have a question on the genealogy because Jesus is, it leads to Joseph. And yep. so I don't know. I just like, does that cause a problem for us? Does it not? Because it's supposed to be through the line of David, but is Jesus related to Joseph even? You know, I don't know. I don't totally know what my question is, but it's a question on the genealogy. And the question is stemming from his historicity. So if Jesus literally didn't come from uh, the line, right, is there a break? What is very fascinating, though, why is Joseph later in life? It's a miraculous conception. In other words, Jesus is conceived not through normal procreative means. So why name Joseph? It's inviting in. It could be inviting kind of an outsider who's brought. It could be a person paradigm that even stepchildren took birth. Like it, it, it could be a variety of things. In, in my mind, it doesn't pose a problem because there, there are too many options choose from what it what it could of what it could tell. I think the immediate I think the immediacy of the theological notion of it is right after this story, a good reader would say, no, 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 Joseph had actually no role. The angel and Mary had the role. Joseph had no role. So somehow already it should tell you something else going on. And that's something else going on. Okay. Let's keep, let's keep rolling on. Let's keep rolling on. Great. Can I ask you a question? Oh, time for that? Okay. Um, I think for me, it's like, I see this, this like story when you're retelling it, but like when I'm reading it, like there's this whole paragraph about John the Baptist. It's like, how do you know what to get kind of caught up in and what not to, what to pick up on and what not to? Totally fair. Let me give you two types of readings and let me uh, assign it to drinking. Right now, I am drinking a delightful cup of tea because my throat is on fire due to allergies. Mm. <laughs> so, what am I doing with this tea? I don't know how many times you've seen me pick it up. 
sipped it every now and again. And I sip it and I savor it. There are other times, there are other times when you need to be guzzling water, right? You need to be drinking a lot, dehydrated, something. Okay, there are different <clears throat> modes. I am sure that the majority of our reading habits is looking at a small store, sitting on the store. Good, that is valuable, that's good habits. Honestly, that's how the church is us to If you're at a good, healthy church where sort of preaching through a book to read in chunks, focus on those chunks. One of the things that it doesn't teach people how to do the big story because it's so slow, right? so slow reading, reading text. So we're used to drinking coffee as we read small print. I am now trying to say, whoa, let's back up. I actually think we're guzzling water. Here are the five points to see. So when we do these bigger narrative items, we're not looking at the fine details. We will do that later in this class because I'm going to teach us how to read at those fine details. This one right here is teaching us how to do the big. Is that helpful, Lauren? There yeah. are multiple ways to read a text. This one is the big sweep of the hand. Okay, so let's keep let's keep rolling. And I want to just highlight this again to show you where we're at. We're going to now move on into cycle two. Make sure that this is written down. That that's written down, and then I'm going to pull out of it here. But here, if you look at chapter eight, it then goes back into storytelling. Because it goes back into storytelling, we should be um, having in our mind this idea that, okay, we're now in a new section. Cycle one is over. We're now beginning cycle two. Chapter eight, notice, notice how it begins. What does Jesus do there in the beginning of chapter eight? Killing people. Yeah, I start seeing people, namely a leper. That, that's actually pretty important that it's a leper right out of the gate. Then in verse 5, what's the story? Mm. Verse 5, what's the story? Faith yeah, it's the, faith the centurion. Of, yeah, the faith of the centurion. Then in verse 14, it's kind of this hodgepodge. But pay attention to who Jesus healed. Whom does Jesus heal? Peter's mother-in-law. I'm gonna give it, I'm gonna give it something a little bit more general. A woman. Heals a woman. Go ahead and can I stop sharing this or do I need to keep this up? I will come back to this. We only get cycle two. Just get cycle two. Three, two, one. Okay. Uh, look at verse uh, 18. What happens there in verse 18? What happens there in verse 18? He's talking about following him. 
Yeah. Kind of the kind of this general call. The dead bury their own, but you come follow me. Verse 23, Jesus calms a storm. Uh, verse 28, Jesus heals two men with demons. There in chapter 9, uh, the start of chapter 9, what does Jesus do? Heals a paralytic. Right? Jesus heals a paralytic. Verse, uh, verse 9, whom does Jesus call? Matthew. Last week, we talked about the authorship of Matthew. Matthew's a Levite. He writes himself into the story here, and he writes how he was called by Jesus to follow him. We then have a couple questions about fasting. Then in verse 18, we now have what again? Another woman being healed. Verse 27, Jesus heals two blind men. Verse 32, Jesus healed what? Amen. Yeah. Amen. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna mention what the last story is. And I think there's a reason. Hold on. The last story. Let's back up. You look at verse one. You have story number one. You look at verse five. I'm in chapter eight. You look at verse five, you have story number two. You look at verse 14, you have story number three. And then you're anticipating another story. But what happens in verse 18? Jesus calls. Story one, story two, story three, Jesus calls. Then in verse 23, you kind of have this story about Jesus calming the storm. So we can almost call that story one, verse 28, the healing of two demons, story two, chapter nine, verse one, story three, Jesus is healing the paralytic. Then in verse nine, what do we have again? The call. Okay. This is too coincidental now. We have three back-to-back -back stories ended with a call. We have three back-to-back -back stories ended with a call. Look at verse 14. We have verse 14. Just some questions about fasting. We then have verse 18. Healing a withered, a withered, uh, uh, a withered girl. Verses 27 and 32, I think, can actually go together because it's the healing of sort of outcasts. So here again, we have story one, story two, story three, not a call. It's not a call. But rather... Verse 25 begins this commissioning. Go out into the world. There's actually few laborers. We need more laborers. Oh, dear Lord, we need labor. Where I think we're written in the story. Go back to chapter 8. We're going to keep doing this back and forth. Because I'm trying to teach you how to see the big points of it. 
if chapters two through seven is recreating kingdom, recreating mosaic, uh, undoing mosaic law, bringing into no, new law, uh, uh, and the sort of the new covenant. But I, I would almost suggest it's the way of human flourishing in the kingdom of, of Jesus. What happens in this kingdom? A leper, a centurion, and a woman are healed. No, 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 no. These three people are, are not welcome in the kingdom. In Jesus' kingdom, they are. Lepers are outcasts. They're pushed out. A centurion is not an Israelite. He's an outcast. According to Jewish custom, no woman's voice carried a full person's voice in a court of law. Talk about three people you shouldn't mention if you're trying to get people to follow you in the first century. And then what does Matthew do? Look at verse 18. Come follow me. I'm, I'm the king that brings healing. I'm the king that is bringing the true kingdom. Okay, let's tell this story again. I'm the king that now can control weather. I'm the king that can control demons. And I'm also the king that can control the name. And then he calls Matthew. He calls Matthew. He's a tax collector. You are not welcome, O tax collector. The Pharisees even accused Jesus later of dining with prostitutes, sinners, and tax collectors. What, that's a bad place to write yourself in, Matthew. What are you doing? Can you not see how Matthew's retelling the kingdom of God's story? It's retelling the kingdom of God story. God's kingdom comes to lepers. God's kingdom comes to national outsiders. God's kingdom comes to women. And Jesus says, come follow me. God's kingdom rules weather. God's kingdom is even over the demons. God's kingdom, it's not taken aback by those who are paralytic. They're welcomed. You are welcomed into the kingdom. Not only that, I'm going to write myself into the story as a tax collector. This is a perfect spot. God in his kingdom welcomes tax collectors. We have this question about fasting. What do we do with customs? We then have another woman that's healed. We now have people who can't see. Oh my goodness, can you not see the spiritual elements of this? God calls those who can't see, those who can't speak to join him. the call in the end of Matthew 9. And this is where we as readers want to join. Jesus says, 
oh, the harvest is plentiful. Oh, the harvest is plentiful, but I don't have laborers. Do you not hear the call to follow Jesus here? The end of chapter nine is a call to follow Jesus into the harvest. You have three stories, a call, three stories, a call, three stories, a story. And it's the story to invite you, the reader, to join into the mission. So now we hop into Matthew 10. What happens in Matthew 10? It's no longer a story, but it's now a discourse. Jesus now instructs. What does he instruct? O 12, go out into the harvest. O 12, you just heard me sort of reframe what the kingdom does. You go out and be extensions of the kingdom. But be careful because persecution will come. But remember, the kingdom of God is mightier than demons. We are not over persecution. We are not over persecution. Have no fear. And then the story ends, or the speech ends. So coming back to the cycle, we're now in cycle two. Jesus is calling forth a different type of people. In chapters eight and nine, we see Jesus bringing the kingdom to people with a type of call. And then in chapter 10, Jesus extends the kingdom through the ministry of his disciples. And it's all through this storytelling. All through this story telling. Any questions here on cycle two? Is that right so far? Are we seeing things we've never seen before? Are we seeing new things? Are we seeing old things? Mm -hmm. well, let's keep rolling. Cycle three, cycle three, keep in mind Abraham. Abraham is about a people group. In chapters 11 to 12, we're gonna see something unfold. It's not a good part of the story. Not a good part of the story. The people who we thought would believe Jesus don't. So then what does Jesus do? He also message. This is a weird concept. In chapter 13, Jesus makes it harder to believe in. But I want to get to an idea in there on, on what happens on the concealing aspect. So Israel is going to reject the king. The people who thought who we thought would believe him rejects the king. Chapter 11, verse 1. When Jesus finished instructing his disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their city. So it's like the story goes on. But it's now a story about John the Baptist. And what does John the Baptist do? He sort of scratches his head and says, wait a minute. You're not, I, I thought you were the Messiah. 
are, are you, wait, you are the Messiah, aren't you? Like it's this questioning. John the Baptist, you, you baptized Jesus and now we're like living in this world of questioning. And it, it's unbecoming now of, of, of John the Baptist. Chapter 20, chapter 20. I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Verse 20, he's now condemning cities that we should recognize. These are cities that rejected the covenant people. And I think Matthew, just in a sense of grace, verse 25, inserts this line of Jesus. Come unto me, you are weak. We just heard two back-to-back stories. People that we thought we would believe. Depart. Chapter 12, we now see the Pharisees. We haven't seen them in a while. You notice this, we haven't seen them in a while. Pharisees pop up and they just start trying to trick Jesus of a, a religious group that should have known, they should have known. There's no exception. They should have known. They didn't. Verse 15, Jesus fulfills prophecy, and it's a quote from Isaiah 42. You know what Isaiah 42 is about? He's the Messiah. Jesus says, look, I, I promise you I'm the Messiah. You just have this weird expectation of it, and you didn't let me shape it. He's the Messiah. We then have this sort of kind of demon, another demon scene. We then have in verse 33 of chapter 12. Oh, got it. Fruit is known by its roots. The tree is known by the fruit that it produces. Instead of the other way around. No wonder the Pharisees are poor. No wonder the Pharisees don't get it. They're attached to the wrong tree. Then the sign of Jonah? What an odd place to insert that story. Oh, do you not remember the story of Jonah? A people who knew, a person who knew, and a person who ran away. <clears throat> Matthew Benson says, wait, wait, wait. Story of Jonah is actually going to point to Jesus who resurrected. But it's in a story of condemnation here, in a story of rejection. It gets worse. It gets worse. Verse 46. I realize that many probably appeal to verse 46 to 49 as a way to redefine the people of God. But I think if we miss its structure or we miss its setting, I actually think the spotlight is on the mother and the brother, not on the group. Jesus looks at his mom and says, nope, I had many mothers here. Jesus looks at his single brother and says, nope, I had many brothers here. Do you not see how that's a story of rejection? That's a story of rejection. 
it's a parable, right? I, I think the story actually happened, but it's meant to communicate something. It's chapters 11 to 12 have this constant, this constant undercurrent of people who should have known didn't know. This constant story of, I thought you should have known this, but you didn't. And so this rejection and turning, this rejection and turning. And so we then jump into chapter 13. It's the long chapter of parables. It's this long chapter of parables. Flip over to verse 14. Verse 14 quotes what Isaiah scripture? What Isaiah scripture? Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6. Can I say how depressing that is? Isaiah 6 is we missionize this. Here's what I mean by this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He pulls out a coal, cleanses Isaiah's lips, and he says, who shall go for us? I'll go. That's awesome. He goes. But what type of message is he promised? God says, oh, I'm going to send you, Isaiah. But I have already promised to harden the hearts of your hearers. I've promised to close the ears of your hearers. And I've promised to close the eyes of those who will stand in front of you. No one will turn. Matthew quotes it here. Okay, let, let me just push pause. We haven't talked about ministry today. Let's push pause. Real quick. <laughs> just real quick. I wonder if we think Jonah's the faithful one. He turned the whole city. He turned a whole city to repentance. I want to invite us to consider Jeremiah and Isaiah as more faithful than Jonah. Success of ministry is not in the product that you produce, but in the type of person you become. Mm -hmm. Jonah preached the message. And what happened? The whole city repented. And what did Jonah do? He threw a pity party. He turned into a baby. Full pity party went outside of the city. Jeremiah never saw a convert wept, known as the weeping prophet. Isaiah is given a commission to go and is promised that no one will ever listen to him. Hey, my fellow seminarians, you're on the cusp of new ministry. The church is getting ready to call you to be some type of minister, some type of discipleship leader or something. I promise you in the next 60, 80 years of your life, you will see no convert. No one will listen to you. No one will hear you. And I now ask this question. Are you sure you still want to go to ministry? Jonah ran. Isaiah said, I cannot but go. Why? Not because of the outcome, but because of who he saw. Glory of God fuels your mission. Success in ministry is not the product that you produce. 
not the multitudes that convert. That's not success in ministry. Success in ministry is who you become in the midst of pursuing ministry to others. That's success. Can I tell you something? No one sees it. No one sees it. The world will tell you, oh, you only have five disciples. Oh, I got 20. Did you know that I spoke to 500 people this last week? Oh, you only did 20? Got it, got it, okay. Right, there's a veneer of numbers. I just wanna put before us, Isaiah saw zero, Jeremiah saw zero, Jonah saw the vast multitude. So Matthew 13, Matthew 13, Look at the purpose of parables. The purpose of parables has a concealing element. This is odd. Only the chosen can hear it. Parables were meant to be an indicting message against Israel and an inviting message to the people of God. Turn. Chapter 13 is the turn. Chapter 11 through 12. We see the full rejection. We see Israel's rebellion and rejection to come into chapter 13 of parables. They're meant to exclude. Parables are meant to exclude Israel and then be known and inviting towards those who can understand, which is very fascinating. The only gospel to use ecclesia is found in the next cycle. To tell you something, it's here that the people of God is fully transformed. The church. It was never meant to be. Or, secondly, the church is the truth. They're the true covenant overarching people of God. So we're now in cycle four. I'm going to move through this a little bit quicker because I'm looking at the time. Chapter uh, 14. Chapter 14. Uh, we have this sort of movement to chapter 16. It's very interesting. People, Jesus is calling people to himself. Jesus is showing himself anew there in the middle of chapter 14 uh, to his disciples. He's healing more in chapter 15. He pushes aside the Pharisees once more. Chapter uh, 15, verse 10, he uh, teaches on the kind of a, a, a truer idea of what does the law mean there of what defiles a person. And again, verse 21, centurion is mentioned, but notice what's combined, centurion and a woman. Verse 29, he heals many. Chapter 16, the Pharisees demand signs. What does Jesus do? There in verse 5, he gives a little parable about leaven. And it's meant to be indicting against the Pharisees. The indicting against the Pharisees. And in verse 13, he turns to Matthew. I sorry, he turns to Peter. And he says, oh, Peter, who do people say that I am? Some say, son, 
some say John the Baptist. Wait, what? John the Baptist just died. So Jesus is somehow John the Baptist breathing. Like, what? Like that? That's a little odd. Some say Elisha. Elisha was just a great man of God bringing uh, hope and peace and promise. Others say Jeremiah, right up the cusp of returning to exile. One just say a prophet, kind of just a good teacher. But he turns to uh, Peter and says, But who do you say? Christ. You're the Christ. Actually, think you're the Messiah. Oh, Peter, I think we all have a little bit of Peter's heart in us. Right after that amazing confession, what did he do? Betrayed. Yeah. Actually, Jesus rebukes him, says, Satan, get behind me. Like, oh my God. Like, I don't want to hear that from Jesus. Look at verse 17. Verse 18, sorry. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, it's very fascinating. Peter, Spethus, Petros. Peter in Greek is really close to Petros in Greek. So I think there's a play on words here in the Greek language. When Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll build my church, the Catholic Church sees it as the apostolic succession built upon Peter. Protestants see this as, it's upon the confession. Can we say both? This is what I mean by both. How does Acts start? Acts 2 starts with the preaching of Peter. The start of the church is on Peter's preaching. But not how Catholics say it in the sense that I'm in Peter Blonde. No, no, no. So I do actually think it's on Peter himself and the confession. Then we get over to chapter 18. The only gospel to use the word ecclesia. The only gospel to use the word church. Chapter 18 is now teaching. Chapter 18 is now teaching. It's now the discourse. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Oh, church. Wow. Can I ask you a question? Do you look at the father as if you are his child? I hope so. That right there, you're the greatest. You're the greatest in the kingdom. <clears throat> you're a child in God. That right there is the concept. You're the greatest. Not James and John who are trying to jockey to try to sit next to Jesus in the kingdom. <laughs> oh, no, that's the, the child who comes. Jesus points to the child and says, that right there, great. Those who come to me like a child. And then 
uh, it gives instruction. What do we do when we see people go astray there in verse 10? What do we do when we see people sin against you? Verse 15. And then Jesus tells a parable. Verse 21. In Jewish customs of the first century, how many times will you extend forgiveness? Three times. That's it. Three times, according to Jewish customs. You are to forgive people there in verse 21. How many? Seven times seven. Or seven times 70. In other words, it's a whole lot more than three. The point is, you lose track of counting. Okay, this is me sort of even inviting myself into this vision. Uh, Jen Wilkin mentioned one time that sometimes teachers out-teach themselves. <laughs> like, they invite the multitude to outdo things that they're even willing to do. Do not keep track of how many people are on I would be a good Jew. Get free candy. Then the ethics of the church. Chapter 8, essentially the first instruction given at Lesia. What is it? Childlike faith and how to forgive. How often? How often do you hold grudges? How often do you harbor Can you even say that it's 70 times 7 that you extend forgiveness? Or is it more like 3? Where are you getting this 3 number from? Jewish custom. It, it's uh, a Jewish custom. So a, if a Jew in the first century were hearing Jesus talk, he'd be going out of it. Mm. Then we get into okay. chapter. We're going to do this really quickly, and we're going to finish this in about five minutes. Cycle five. We now have sort of the, the movements towards the passion. We see judgment and blessings of the kingdom in chapter. So sorry, I I meant to unmute myself earlier, but I wanted to ask about the Jewish customs. Oh, the Jewish customs customs like the three number. Does that have any correlation to Jesus telling Peter that he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed? Like that whole thing. Uh, that's a good question. I'm uh, not. I would need to sit on, I don't know if I've seen any literature related to that. Uh, I don't know if I've seen, but, I, but I'm not, I'm not opposed to that. I want to, uh, I would want to consider that more. I actually think it's quite appealing that if that is the case, it demonstrates that he's had it every Professor, it's getting a little hard to hear you. I don't know if your mic is skipping up. But oh, there's nothing now. Lauren, can you hear me? I can hear you now. 
Yes. Is it going in and out? No, it's okay. Is it okay now? Yes. Can you please go back to your screen, the yep. screen sharing? Absolutely. So to, to pick up what Jess mentioned, that the denial of Peter uh, uh, correlate to that Jewish I wouldn't be opposed to it. Okay, so chapter 19, we're going to move really quickly. Chapter 20, we now have some indictments coming. Chapter 21, Jesus starts, Jesus starts cursing items. There's judgment. Uh, chapter 22, we then have kind of the final pull away into then chapter 23. I realize I'm moving really quick. I'm looking at the time and I need to finish. Chapter 23, we finally come to the last discourse. Finally come to the last discourse in chapter 23. It is condemnation to the Pharisees there in chapter 23. It's proclamation of total judgment of the temple in chapter 24 with the full promise of restoration in chapter 25. And the discourse ends. Then the story just sort of picks up. The story needs to finish. And so chapters 26 to 28 sort of just finishes out the story. It's the passion. It's the resurrection. It's the new commissioning of the people of God. Okay. So what is the purpose of Matthew? What is the purpose of Matthew? I really need you to get this phrase. Really need you to get this phrase. I'm going to highlight it again just so that you have it. What is the purpose of Matthew? It is to demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament story, namely Abraham and David. Abraham, because it recreates people. David, because it inaugurates and shows the kingdom of God by bringing in his kingdom and reshaping the people of God anew. Okay, any questions? Okay, let's go ahead and take a quick five. Let's go ahead and take a quick five, and then we'll we'll come back to this. Go get a drink, go get some tea. I'm gonna fill up, and then we'll come back and we'll finish. <laughs>